Amen, amen. Hey, grab a seat. Like many, I'm sure here, um, kind of my first big life decision moment happened at 18 years old as I was trying to figure out what God wanted me to do with my life after high school. And um, there were decisions before that, but they were minor in comparison. And um, as, as an 18-year-old trying to discern what life after high school meant or looked like, um, for me and my circumstance, it was a decision between two colleges. And uh, one college was kind of the dream school growing up in West Michigan where I had always first saw myself attending, and that was Hope College. Hope College was a Christian school 40 minutes from where I grew up on, in Holland, Michigan on the beautiful shore of Lake Michigan. And, um, and then the other option was a backup plan school that was applied too late, um, four and a half hours away, not a Christian school in the middle of the beautiful cornfields of Montgomery County, Indiana. And um, as I was deciding between Hope and Wabash as the process went on, Wabash began to kind of make a storming comeback. And I, I remember the day, it was a Saturday, um, my senior year, 18 years old, um, when I I knew in my heart where I was supposed to attend school, and that was to leave uh, the safety and the comfort of where I knew in West Michigan and come down to Montgomery County, Indiana, attend Wabash College. Now, um, as you know, because you've all made life decisions and you've all been at the intersections of big decisions in life, when that decision is finally made in your heart, there's a sense of like peace and just uh, I'm just glad to have that behind me. So something very confusing happened for my 18-year-old mind after this decision was made. Um, I wasn't with my parents at the time. We were going to a family function, and I was meeting them there. And I remember, um, I remember on the walkway into Grandma and Grandpa's house, first telling my parents that I was going to go to Wabash College. And um, my dad very quickly spoke encouragement into me and, and, and affirmed that that was the right choice, that as he had kind of been praying himself and thinking about it, he thought that was the better option. My mom, not, 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 not so much. And then we walked into my grandma and grandpa's house and quickly this alliance of affirming the decision that my dad and I had um, was very much in the minority as more and more of the family began to voice their displeasure with the decision that 18-year-old Brock had made. And that was a confusing moment for me, and here's why. Because I knew Scripture said there is wisdom in a multitude of counselors. I knew Scripture talked about the fact that we don't make decisions in vacuums, that we should welcome counsel as we make decisions in life. But I was so convinced in my heart that God had called me to Wabash College, and I had my dad standing beside me affirming that. But on the other side of the coin, I had a whole group of people, people who loved me, people who were all believers, people who I uh, wanted my best and had my best in mind, standing in, a, in opposition to it, saying, we don't think this is a wise move. The question that I think our passage raises today is, what do we, what do, we do when we're there? <laughs> like, what do we do when we really, really, really have been seeking the Lord and we've really wanted to know, God, what decision do you want me to make? What direction do you want me to go? And I, and I mean, we really authentically wanted to know that, not just waiting long enough until we felt like God told us what we wanted to hear. 
but we really wanted to hear from the Lord. And then we, we feel like we have. We, we, we've listened, and it's like, God has made this clear. I'm supposed to do this. And as you tell people, good, Christian, wise counselors, all of a sudden, two camps develop. And there's people who are like, no, this is the worst decision you could ever make. And then there's people like, yes, I've been seeking the Lord with you, and this is absolutely right. What do we do then? What does that look like? And here's why I raise this. Um, if you have a Bible, Acts chapter 21 is where we're going to be. And if you need a Bible under a seat nearby, you'll find a Bible. And you can open that to the book of Acts chapter 21. We've been walking through Acts together as a church for almost 11 months now. And uh, Paul is finishing up his third missionary journey right here. And as he finishes up his third missionary journey, Paul knows something. Deep down inside of his heart, he knows where he's supposed to go. And I don't mean that in some ethereal, abstract sense. No, very literally, he knows he's supposed to go back to Jerusalem right now. And so he's heading east to Jerusalem, but on his way there, Paul is stopping city, 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 city. And as he stops in these cities, on two occasions that we're going to see here today, He's going to meet with the Christians in those cities. And I want us to understand what happens here. The Christians in those cities, two of those cities, well-intentioned. They love Paul. They are, they are people who are seeking God. On two occasions, they're going to give Paul some counsel. They're going to tell him, don't go to Jerusalem. Two different times. Like, I want you to put yourself in Paul's shoes. You know in your heart you're supposed to get back to Jerusalem. You show up in Tyre, and this group of Christians is like, don't go. And you're like, okay, it's probably just them. You get to Caesarea, and the Christians go, don't go. Now you got to be thinking, okay, like, did I miss it? Like, am I not supposed to go? Did I think I was supposed to go? But I need to listen to these people. But here's the deal. A spoiler alert coming. Paul goes anyways. He goes anyways. And he goes anyways really believing that he's obeying and following what the Lord wanted him to do. My question for us, was Paul just pridefully obstinate, not listening to the counsel God had put in his life? Or... Was Paul obeying the Lord and what God had called him to do, which is what I think the tone of Acts is trying to tell us, then what in the world do we do with this well-intentioned Christian counsel along the way? Here's the title of today's message. Decisions, the Spirit, and well-intentioned counsel. Decisions, the Spirit, and well-intentioned counsel. We are going to wrestle with the fact that all of us should seek out a multitude of Christian counselors in our life, and then we have to learn how to discern the counsel that we are receiving from them. Now, let me give a disclaimer and a warning. The disclaimer and the warning of this message, teenagers especially, listen up, okay? Those in the room who may be a little bit younger in your walk with Jesus Christ, listen up. You're going to see a passage today in which Paul is going to keep doing what God has told him to do in the face of some Christian counselors saying, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. If you miss, like if you check out and kind of check back in with me today, you could walk out of here with a very, very dangerous belief. And that is this. I don't need anyone else. 
I'll just do what God told me to do. Got that, Mom? You said don't date him. Guess what? God told me to date him. What are you going to do about that? No, 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 no. We are going to be very, very careful and cautious to get a right understanding of how to discern with the help of the Spirit of God the counsel that is coming into us so that we can make decisions that are ultimately the most pleasing to God. This isn't a, I can throw counsel out the window and just say that God told me to do this so I can go do whatever I want. That will completely miss the point of today's message. Deal? And so let's ask God's help right now through prayer as we get into his word. God, I, pr- I really need your help. Oh, Lord, I don't want to muddy up the waters at all, but Lord, there is something we have to do in wrestling with um, why you have called Paul to get back to Jerusalem and why on his path there he's confronted by two different groups of believers who love him and love you, who've told him not to go. And yet, Lord, we're going to watch as Paul persists in doing what he knows you've called him to do. And God, we got to sort out that there's seasons in our life where you call us to decisions and you lead us in directions. And Lord, we're going to have counsel on both sides of the equation of that. Lord, it's always sweet when a big decision comes up and all the Christians in our life are, are in a unified agreement. But then, Lord, we've all experienced at times so we have people kind of on both sidelines and different opinions. And God, this is a message today to help give us discernment for what to do in decisions and direction times like that. And so, God, I, I really just beg you for your help that you'd be the teacher here, that your word would be clear. Um, God, as I've already said, that I would not muddy that up at all. And I need your help now. By the power of your spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. Um, I want to give you the first point right off the bat, because the first point kind of sets a foundation of where we're going, and it's this. We have to agree and we have to understand that God will place convictional calls on my life. And now, let me tell you what I mean by convictional calls. Um, the, to use that example of the college decision, I not only believe... Um, Uh, Let me say it like this. I was not only making a decision of where to go to college, I believed deep down in my heart that God had called me to Wabash College. And that for me to not obey him in that would be disobedient. And God will, we have to get this, God desires as a good dad to us, he desires to lead us in decision making that we have in life. He desires to give us direction to follow. And I want us to hear that, especially if you're in here this morning and you're in the midst of one of those intersections of life where you're trying to seek out the Lord for a decision or, God, what direction do you want me to go? Just tell me. I just want, and maybe you've sat in that for months or even a year. I want you to hear that God delights in leading your steps and guiding your path. Now, let me show you the convictional call on Paul's heart as we've seen it in the last couple chapters of Acts. Acts 19, verse 21. It says, now after these events, you can look on the screen, Paul resolved in the spirit. He resolved in what? 
He resolved in the Spirit, capital S, Spirit, not in His Spirit. He, de- he resolved in the Holy Spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. Now, next chapter, we studied it last week. Look at what we see here. Now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem. Help me read this. Constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. I want you to see Paul has on his heart a convict, what he believes to be a convictional call from God. When he says, I'm constrained by the Spirit in this, what that means, I'm bound by the Spirit. The Spirit has bound me to go and obey him in this. I must obey. Now, he continues to travel eastward towards Jerusalem And that's where we pick it up in chapter 21, verse 1. Matt, behind me on the screen as I read this so you can get your bearings on all these places we're going to see. It says, And when we had parted from them, they're leaving the meeting with the Ephesian elders in the city of Miletus. When we had parted from them and set sail, we came by a straight course to Kaz, and the next day to Rhodes, and then from there to Patera. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia... We went aboard and set sail. When we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre. For there the ship was, un- for there the ship was to unload its cargo. And having sought out who? So we're going to be with believers here. We got to get that. Having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And now this is where it can get very confusing. We stayed there for seven days, and what's the next three words say? And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. Okay, what's Paul going to do with that? Verse 5, when our days there were ended, we, what's it say? We departed, and we went on our journey, and they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city, and kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship, and they returned home. What in the world do we do with verse 4? Because in the two chapters leading up to verse 4, we have Paul resolving, resolved by the Spirit of God, i got to go to Jerusalem. Chapter 20. Paul, constrained by the Spirit of God, I got to get to Jerusalem. Chapter 21, verse 4, he's with a group of believers in the city of Tyre, and they, by the Spirit, say, don't go to Jerusalem. We have a couple options with what we have to do with this. The first option is this. Paul was wrong. He wasn't really constrained by the Spirit, He just thought he was, and now God has put some believers in his path to help correct his path and show him that he was wrong. I don't agree with that there. The second option we have is the Spirit changed his mind. Like, yeah, Paul, you know, you should go to Jerusalem. Go to Jerusalem. Oh, you know, actually, you know, a couple weeks later, don't, let's not do that. Let's change the plan. The Spirit changed his mind. Um, 
I do not agree with that because that is heresy. The Spirit of God does not change his mind. The Spirit has not changed his mind on whether Paul should go to Jerusalem or not. So what in the world do we do with verse 4? Here's what I think has happened with verse 4. Do you remember what it said in Acts 20 about Paul saying, I got to go to Jerusalem? He said, "Um, I got to go to Jerusalem. I don't know what's going to happen to me there, but... In every city, the Spirit testifies to me that, what it say? Imprisonment and affliction are awaiting me. You know what I think has happened with the believers in Tyre? I believe the, the Spirit of God has witnessed that same thing to them as, as the Spirit of God did to Paul. I believe they clearly have a vision from the Lord that says, guess what? What's awaiting for Paul is imprison and, uh, imprisonment and affliction. I believe they got the right revelation from the Lord, and I believe because they got that right revelation from the Lord, they gave them some counsel with some wrong, wrong application to that. Wait, hold on. If imprisonment and affliction are awaiting him, then let's tell him not to go. Right revelation, bad application. Now, if you're like, I don't see that, keep, keep going with me. And I think that's going to be clearer as we go here. Verse 7. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemaeus, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea. And we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying for many days... A prophet named Agabus came down from Judea, and coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says who? Thus says the Holy Spirit. This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Now, just stop there. Imagine you're in this house. You're hanging out with Paul. Paul's teaching or doing whatever the Apostle Paul would be doing in the house, and he's wearing this belt. They've wore much different things than I'm wearing today. And he's wearing his belt around kind of that overcoat as we've seen from, um, you know, Sunday school class. And a guy walks through the door. I'm, I'm just saying, if a guy named Agabus walks through my door and tries to, like, you know what I mean? Like, he walks through the door. He, he gets Paul's belt, he bends down to his own feet, and he, um, he binds his feet with Paul's belt, and, and then he takes his hands, and he binds his own hands with Paul's belt, and he looks straight in Paul's eyes, and he says, thus says the Holy Spirit, here's what's going to happen to the owner of this belt. And everyone in the room knows the clear prophecy given before them from God through Agabus. Now, that's the prophecy. That's all it said. Now, look at what happens after they see this prophecy. Verse 12. When we heard this, Luke, the writer of Acts, is including himself in this. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not 
to go up to Jerusalem. See the difference. I want us to clearly, clearly do the hard work of seeing what I'm trying to pull out from this passage that I believe is there. The Spirit of God didn't say, don't go up to Jerusalem. The Spirit of God said, here's what's going to happen to you when you go up to Jerusalem. Paul's like, I know, the Holy Spirit already testified that to me too. Now he's testified that to the people in Tyre. Now he's testified that to the believers in Caesarea. And because this is the event, can you imagine the power of this event? All of the other Christians in the room then are thinking that the right application to that revelation is then Paul, don't go. I believe What the Spirit is doing is testifying the same thing to the group of Christians along Paul's path, but they're they're misapplying the revelation. They're assuming that because bad things are ahead for Paul, that Paul should not go. And as we keep reading here in a moment, we're going to see Paul's like, I know bad things are are, are ahead for me, and I know I'm called to this. Now, before we go on, let me make the second point here so we can pull some principles out of this. God will place convictional calls on my life. He wants to lead us in decision-making. He wants to direct our path. When I get competing counsel, what I mean by that is when you know the Spirit of God is leading you to something, and you begin to vocalize that, and now people are like, I don't think you should do that. That's what I'm talking about with competing counsel. When I get competing counsel against a a convictional call, I must know how to discern this, okay? So just put yourself in a life situation where you have a decision to make or direction that you got to choose on. You decide on something. You have people who love you saying, I don't think you should do this. How do we discern what to do when that happens? So I want to show us some things here. Let's call them guidelines for competing counsel. Guidelines for competing counsel. Under each of these guidelines, there's a truth we need to acknowledge and there's an action we need to take. But when we have made a decision or we think we're supposed to go somewhere and we believe God's leading us to it, and we have people who say, I don't know about this, the first truth we have to acknowledge is this. I am fallible. I may be wrong. That's really important that we humble ourselves to say I, am, I can be wrong in this. I thought this is what God wants me to do. I th- still think this is what God wants me to do. But I need to recognize that there's some counsel in my life who are saying, I'm not quite sure about that. And the first thing I need to do is humble myself and go, I might be wrong in this. And once we've acknowledged that truth, here's the action we need to take. Just, just slow down. Pull the throttle back. Gather more counsel. Spend more time in prayer. Ask God to shine a lot of light on this situation and really show you what he wants you to do. Invite those counselors in your life who are saying, I don't know about that. Invite them to pray through this with you. Just slow down the throttle. The second truth we need to acknowledge when we meet competing counsel and decisions for life is this. The counsel may be rightly or wrongly motivated. The counsel may be rightly or wrongly motivated. 
The action to take with that is this, to draw close and to draw out. Here's what I mean by that. Um, let me just use, because it's, it's concrete, so let me just keep using the example of the college decision. <laughs> I love you, Mom. Um, when I made that decision, Mom was very uneasy with that for, for what, what conventional wisdom would say for good reasons. It wasn't her baby boy was now not 40 minutes away. He was four and a half hours away. Her baby boy was not going to a Christian college anymore. He was going to a secular college. And, and like, what was impacting her counsel in that moment were the fears that were rising up inside of her. Not necessarily a like, but what if Jesus really is calling my son as a missionary to a campus? That's where I would say rightly motivated counsel is ultimately focused on Jesus, what do you want, even if it is a costly thing, even if it means stepping out on faith. And so when you come across competing counsel, you draw close to that. Mom, tell me why you're feeling like this. You don't stiff arm it and distance yourself and just be like, you're wrong, God told me. You draw close to that. And then over time, what happens is you'll draw out the motives. And over time, it'll go, I'm just scared. I just always thought you'd be 40 minutes down the road, and the motives will be drawn out on that. Let me give you another example. Um, I walked through the door after the college decision, and my grandpa, I can still see him sitting in his corner chair, he found out, um, he found out where I was going to end up going, and he shook his, he always shake his head. How are, we, how are we supposed to get to football games four and a half hours away? Okay, uh, the motives there are pretty clear. Like, I can just disregard Grandpa's thoughts here because he's motivated by the quickest trip to a football game. That's what I'm talking about. Like, you got to pull out the motives. And sometimes, parent, parents especially, and, and I can't speak to you as a parent of, like, an 18-year-old or a 20-year-old who's making significant life decisions my oldest is three. His hardest decision in a day is like Spider-Man jammies or Paw Patrol jammies, right? <laughs> and, but but I'm, I'm, I'm praying for us younger parents and I'm praying for you parents that are in seasons when like your adult son, and it's hard, isn't it probably hard enough to realize like you're an adult, what? But when they come to you and they say, I really believe God's called me to this and it's not the safest route and it's the riskier route, that you really will pray with them to go, I want to throw out all of my biases for you to just be safe, and I really want you to follow the Lord in this, that you will search out the motives of your own heart and the counsel that you're giving there, and you will just say, "What Jesus, whatever will most glorify you in my son's life. That's what I'm talking about with motives. Third truth to acknowledge is this, and it's related to number two. I may or may not have the best counselors for this. I may or I may not have the best counselors for this decision. Here's the action to take with that. Make sure you get and make sure you have prayerful, spirit-led, non-people-pleasing, radical Jesus-following counselors in your life. Make sure you have prayerful people who really do live on their knees in prayer 
who really want to hear from the Lord. Make sure you have spirit-led, who, who are able to set aside the conventional wisdom of the world and say, Lord, what is your wisdom in this? Spirit of God, help us in this. Make sure you have non-people pleasers, people who won't just tell you what you want to hear. Listen, the, one of the most destructive things that can happen in our lives is when we just surround ourselves with people who will always just affirm that which we really just want to do anyway. They'll say, great, that's awesome. Whatever makes you happy. Terrible idea. It's a terrible idea. And it will create so much heartache in your life if we don't have people in our life who are willing to say, I know you want to do this and I love you. And because I love you, I got to say something hard. Please, please, please consider, consider. And then have radical Jesus following counselors in your life. What I mean by that? Uh, here's a guy in my life who's part of this this council. Uh, his name's MTs from Chicago. Got a guy, his name's MTs in Chicago. And um, <laughs> he's not part of the mob. Um, Michael, Michael MT, we call him. Michael, he leads a ministry called One Way Ministries, and I interned with him after my sophomore year of college. And but long before like Francis Chan's Crazy Love or David Platt's Radical was like popular, Michael Thompson really was living out and believing that like it's just supposed to be normal for Jesus followers to be like radical in following Jesus. And it was the first time I was exposed to this. And I was just like, I can't, you're crazy, man. And what I meant by that is he would just read the word and be like, Jesus says to do, let's just go do that. And I'm like, what? That's crazy. And then I'm going, oh, that's supposed to be so normal for us. Michael is a guy who at life crux moments gets a call from me or an email from me. Here's why. Because I know Michael won't tell me ultimately what I want to hear, and I know he won't counsel me that to which is just safest for me, he will really seek the Lord and be like, yeah, yeah, that's crazy that you want to do. That's a huge risk for the Lord. God's calling you to do that. Get counselors in your life who care so much about God's glory and so much about your life being all about God's glory that at times they will counsel you towards the greater faith step and the riskier thing because it will act, it's actually the thing that will bring God most glory. So, back to the passage. Paul knows what's ahead for him. The Spirit has already testified that to him. Now he has two separate groups of Christians saying, we don't think you can go to Jerusalem. My argument, their motivation is a wrong application of the revelation they got. That all rhymed and sounded like Dr. Seuss. Um, <laughs> wrong application of the revelation they got because they're concerned, rightly so, about they love Paul and they don't want him to experience anything bad or hard. Now look at what Paul does in the midst of what they're telling him. Verse 13. Then Paul answered, What are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart. For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And now this is crucial. Verse 14 is crucial. And since he would not be persuaded... We ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. They ultimately stepped back and they said, the Spirit of God, Paul, has made clear to you what's ahead for you. The Spirit of God has made clear to us what's ahead for you. 
you're saying God is still calling you into the midst of the lion's mouth of that persecution and hardship, if, may God's will be done. If that is ultimately truly what God wants you to do, may God's will be done in this. Third point, when the competing counsel does not trump the convictional call, I must press on in obedience. When the competing counsel does not trump the convictional call, I must press on in obedience. Now, let me give you a modern-day example of what I've just said there in point three. A friend of ours works with um, believers in, around the world, um, including countries that are hostile to, hostile to Christianity, uh, countries where you can lose your life for following Jesus. Um, and in their work with um, one of these Christian leaders in a country hostile to the gospel, they began to notice some um, signs that they've learned to see of what happens before someone is martyred for their faith. And so they've learned some things through the years as they've had people who are part of their ministry who've been martyred for their faith. And they, they, they were telling this guy, my friend is telling this Christian leader in this country, hey, we're starting to see some of the same signs we typically see before someone loses their life for following Jesus. We, we want to pull you out of the country for a time. Um, their counsel to him was, we need to pull you out. We need to get you somewhere safe for a season. That was the counsel from a spirit-filled, wise person who loved this guy. That Christian leader and that country's response was, no, I must not. And they're just like, why? He said, the Spirit of God has made it clear to me that if I leave right now, everyone I'm, who I'm discipling and following Jesus will believe that they can leave too when things get hard. I must not leave. I must stay here, and if I die, I die. And our friends over here on stateside said, may God's will be done. That's what I'm talking about when the convictional call trumps the competing counsel, you obey the Lord. That is the example of that. And that is a modern day example of what we see right here. Don't go, Paul. Don't go, Paul. You're walking into affliction, imprisonment. And Paul's like, I know. The Spirit has already testified that to me. I must go. He has called me to this. The sermon in a sentence is this. When a convictional call is met with competing counsel, I must discern this with the goal of obeying God, okay? Crucial last line there. So young people, those of you in the room who are younger in your faith, um, I mean, even those of us who've walked with Jesus a long time, when you believe God has called you to something and well-intentioned, loving other believers look at you and they say, I don't know about this. The whole filter has got to be, Lord, we just want whatever your will is to be done. Help us to discern what your will is. But then once God has made that clear, we obey. We obey him in that. And so I'm praying that we wrestle through what happens here. Like you go home as a family, you go home and you wrestle with why in the world, like 
Was it wise for Paul to press on in the midst of this council? Everything that's prophesied is going to happen to Paul. My argument before us that it was wise, it was of the Lord. And at times in our life, we will have well-intentioned people who love us, who are giving us counsel because they're motivated out of a desire, out of good things, out of love for us. They're motivated out of a desire to counsel us to whatever is most safe and less risky. And at times, the Spirit of God is going to go, I, you know what I've called you to. You know what I've called you to. Obey me in this. That's what we have to discern in the counseling of this.